Thanks for pressing play. This is Lockhead on Marketing, the number one charting uh, podcast for marketers, category designers, and entrepreneurs with a different mind. Welcome to a very special episode. As you know, we have very few guests generally on this podcast. And um, this episode is especially for tech entrepreneurs and marketers as we explore why, why much of marketing thinking today is actually based on frameworks and models that are 20 years or more older, why they don't work, and um, what you need to do if you want to create a company that is category dominating and a company that shapes the future. Our guests today are Megan Bowen and Chris Walker. They're the COO and CEO of Refine Labs. And they also have a wonderful podcast that I've uh, been proud to um, visit on called the State of Demand Podcast. And you know, there's a lot of uh, bad thinking in marketing. And uh, around here, we like to celebrate smart thinking about marketing. And I got to tell you, Chris and Megan are doing a lot of smart thinking and a lot of great work in uh, helping to drive demand, uh, particularly for tech companies. And by the end of this episode, you will think differently and have some different tools in your toolkit for driving growth and driving demand. Now, readers like you have made Category Pirate's latest book a number one bestseller. It's called The Category Design Toolkit, Beyond Marketing, 15 Frameworks for Creating and Dominating Your Niche. Check out The Category Design Toolkit on Amazon today. Now, hey-ho, let's go. This is Lockheada Marketing, the podcast that helps you develop the lens for what makes legendary marketing legendary. Hosted by Christopher Lockhead, three-time CMO, godfather of category design, and a high school dropout, who the Marketing Journal calls one of the best minds in marketing, and The Economist calls off-putting to some. Megan, Christopher, great to see you. Good to see you. Thanks for having us. Awesome to be here. You guys keep getting better looking. Speaking of getting better looking. Oh, you're just, you're very generous with your compliments. <laughs> well, why not when they're true? <laughs> I'll take it. Not as sexy as your producer, Jason, though. I mean, we all just saw Jason. Him. Jason is looking very sexy right now. <laughs> so um, tell me all about marketing. You guys are doing some legendary work. You know, Megan, obviously, I appreciate you having me on your podcast. Um, I see your posts all the time. And, you know, there's an interesting thing, at least from my perspective, uh, with you two and, and, and Refine overall. You know, in my world, you didn't exist 20 minutes ago. And then somehow you showed up out of nowhere. And now you're making a very meaningful contribution in the marketing world and in the B2B tech world, best I can tell. And so, um, A, thank you uh, uh, for what you're doing. And B, where the fuck did you come from? 20 minutes ago, you were running around. Well, and I'll let Chris t talk about the story of Refine Labs because I always joke that I'm not really a marketer. My background's been in customer success and company operations and company building. And Chris is the true visionary and disruptor in marketing. Um, so I want him to speak to that. And I think what I really bring to the table is a different way to think about company building. And I've had a ton of fun becoming a marketer in how we think about uh, acquiring great talent and positioning our company um, in the eyes of candidates. And so there's a couple fun spins we can go on, but I'll have Chris break down his view of marketing because I think that's that's why we're on this podcast. <laughs> yeah, 100%. And to be clear, 
all of my ideas would never become reality without Megan. So shout out to her. She's really the one who's making a lot of this stuff happen. But when it comes down to the ideas, it's been clear to me for more than five years that there's a massive change in how people in B2B actually want to buy things. And companies are not adjusting to that reality because they're stuck in the old way of measuring and optimizing marketing and sales. And that shift, and it sort of goes in line with what uh, some of those topics that you talk about, Christopher, and the sh- it's native digitals and native analogs is one piece of it. So how how do people primarily want to engage, research, discover, evaluate their dis- suppliers and decisions and make decisions? How do they want to do that? And as we start moving into the workforce, there's more, I think you mentioned a stat of like at least 50% of actual decision makers in a B2B buying process are now native digitals. And when you have that type of shift, what's happening and what we're starting to lean on is this idea of dark social. Dark social being the fact that there's all of these different word of mouth channels that have been scaled through the internet with where B2B peers can communicate different ideas, share content, um, share things internally, collect information and research, all of which are not being tracked um, by software and other methods that B2B companies currently use to measure and evaluate the effectiveness of their marketing which is leaving a lot of holes in how B2B companies go to market and at the same time creating massive opportunities for companies like mine to quote unquote, pop out of nowhere. You know what I mean? Um, We've actually been executing this for about three years now using LinkedIn and a podcast and live events and and a community, these types of activities that have allowed us to scale out and grow in a massive way. Um, it's very obvious that these are the places and these are the activities that are driving business growth and command attention of B2B buyers. However, B2B executives and companies that tend to be native analogs are not seeing these shifts. Amen. Hallelujah, brother. So so let me bounce this one off you. Uh, We started to do some, I wouldn't call it sort of full on data science research. This is more swag research than the sort of more formal stuff we do at Category Pirates. But, you know, if you look at the S&P 500 with, I think I think it might be two or three exceptions. I could be a little bit wrong, but it's infinitesimal. They're run by native uh, analogs. That's kind of point A. Point B is, in my experience, you know, we've been now talking about native digitals and native analogs for almost a year and writing about it and all that stuff. And in any of the work that we do around marketing category design, it is a powerful lens that we use immediately because to your point chris half the buyers are native digitals more than half of america is native digital that is say under 35 now the s p 500 ceo is not fucking aware of this and we have we have now come to us a, a place where we think in the next five certainly ten but probably five there will be more market cap destruction in the S&P 500 as a result of ignorance of the delta between dig- native digitals and native analogs than any other contributing factor in the last 50 years. I'm curious as to what your reaction is to that. I'm seeing this effect happen. And honestly, I feel like we've been seeing this play out in other ways already. Com- uh, a lot of companies growing and taking market share by creating a new category that's built around the native digital, um, which is 
sort of like what we're helping companies do, but only on the marketing side. And I think that it's important to look, and as you talk about, to look more holistically at the overall business. So some of the things that power our advantage, I'm going to let Megan talk about this for a moment. We think about our culture and our talent, talent experience and talent management from a native digital lens. We think about building future products and experiences for customers through a native digital lens. And so when you look at the entire business, not just your marketing, um, there's a lot of companies that can go out and put nice wallpaper on their marketing while the foundations and stuff is cracking inside of the actual found, uh, actual building. Um, so Megan, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about how we think about that from a, a talent experience. Because at this point, we're about 120 people and the the people inside of the company are now building the engine that's creating the awareness, the customer acquisition engine, other things like that as well. Yeah, I think that uh, a core component of any business being successful and continuing to grow is attracting and retaining the right people to join their team and to continue to to execute and innovate. And just like people are running old marketing plays and not catching up to what native digitals need, companies um, also have very antiquated ways that they think about retaining and attracting talent. Um, and I'm sure all the S&P 500 companies that you're referring to, um, many of them are not even thinking about this in any real way. And it comes down to leveraging the same marketing principles that we would uh, advise our B2B SaaS customers to use to acquire customers. But we think about how we talk about what it's like to work at our company, build our employer brand, put out a ton of content of what people can expect in an interview process and onboarding experience, what it's like to work here, give people the information that they need where they already spend their time so that we never really have a shortage of amazing talent that wants to work here given that effort that we've put in. And then thinking about once they're here, you then have to deliver on that experience, right? So how are you creating the conditions um, for the right people to do the right work to have that impact? And I think that's what I've been most proud and surprised of as we've scaled this company so quickly. You know, we could prop me and Chris could probably stop posting on LinkedIn tomorrow, but the other hundred people that work at our company are now doing it on a regular basis. And so we've created a machine, a, a being that is existing beyond us because of how we approached it and the type of people that we bring in here and uh, very intentionally how we craft our employee experience to bring the best out of everyone. And how old is Refine Labs, guys? Just crossed over three years. The business started uh, yep. with no funding in one person in April 2019. Yep. So I'm right in saying that 20 seconds ago you weren't here and now fucking everywhere. Right? I mean, three uh, years yep. is 20 seconds when you're my age and you consume as much uh, of the stimuli that I consume. So got it. Unbelievable. Great job. And as a side note, it's always fun for me to welcome legendary new thinkers in marketing. I forget, I forget which conference it was, but there's some fucking conference recently. It had a terrible fucking, you know, meme flyer, ugly puke of fucking color. And it had all their speakers on it. And it was like, they're all dusty fucks with nothing new to say. I mean, every single one of them. And I'm like, marketing's supposed to be a creative and innovative industry. And it's like, look at who, and I, you know, I won't name 
names, Gary V. But look at who the fuck they're putting out there. I mean, people who are just dusty. Anyway, my point is, uh, you guys are fresh. You guys are new. It's a new firm. And you're bringing a lot of new thinking. So with that said, let me bounce something off you. There is an interesting correlation that we've been talking about between Zelensky and Musk. It's a dot that I don't know that anybody else is connected. So uh, we Category Pirates wrote a piece about how this is the first native digital war. And we saw sort of the beta version of it with the Arab Spring, but uh, which wasn't a war anywhere near like what this is, of course, but uh, a social uprising for sure. Uh, that was the beta version. This is the uh, production version. And what we mean by that is for the first time in the history of war, there's a couple things going on. Number one, you have a, while not technically a native digital, an extraordinarily digitally savvy president against a native analog who is intentionally not digital savvy brags about not being digital savvy. And uh, as a result of Zelensky's activity on social media and in the digital world, a set of things have happened that have never happened before in history, primarily around the sanctions for Russia, of course, and around the over-the-top radical support of Ukraine on, on many, many dimensions from dozens and dozens of countries. And our thesis goes like this. That happened because of what Zelensky did on Instagram. And it's the first time a war in the analog world is being fought and massively advantaged, and many of the experts say being won, as a result of what happened in the digital world to cause the analog world to do what it did. Translation, when tens of millions of people around the world are supporting you in the digital world, major governments are forced to change everything. We've never seen that happen before. So that just let that sit in, in one part of your brain. Now Musk buys Twitter. Well, uh, my buddy Scott Grove says that the reason he bought Twitter is he spent zero on traditional marketing. And so uh, $44 billion in marketing, essentially the $44 billion protects his ability to market to, I believe it's roughly 80 million followers. I could be wrong, but it's roughly in that neighborhood. And he's one of the biggest cult stars. So, you know, The Rock has more followers on Instagram, but the sort of uh, the cult members respond to Musk in a way they don't respond to uh, Dwayne Johnson. Okay, so here's the aha. Here's the dot that I, we don't see anybody connecting. What Musk and Zelensky prove is if you're the leader of something of consequence, and you want to move the world or a part of the world from one way to a new and different way. Being omnipresent in the digital world today not only matters, but it is the, the lever or lever, depending on whether you're a lever or a lever, to analog success. I want to just put that in your brains and get a reaction. And then, and then there's some places we could go. 
I don't think there's anything that's been more true. The entire growth of our business from nothing to where we are today has been driven through digital execution, which then creates analog relationships, customers, employees, experiences, everything like that. It's the same thing of whether like companies right now in their go-to-market strategies will run outbound sales, will build trade show booths, will put up billboards, will do things like that when they could be producing content on LinkedIn, creating podcasts, hosting dig- like virtual digital events that are valuable. And they just choose to continue to play in an analog level world um, as opposed to digital. And so I think this has been, these are two interesting examples and I hadn't connected the dots before, but this is the entire thesis of our company. We get customers, we get talent, we communicate our narrative, we innovate and understand our product requirements, so we can make our product better, all from a digital first lens. It just comes down to spend time where everyone else is spending time and craft your message and distribute that message where they already are. Um, and people are not looking around and seeing what's happening. So they're just continuing to de- deploy their messages where they always have and wondering why things aren't changing. But it's very simple. Um, and then I think the other component of it is especially with the examples that you provided. And I think what matters in marketing and talent uh, acquisition, you need to find a way to break through the noise and create a real emotional connection digitally with other people. So it's not just about executing on the plays, which are very simple. It's executing effectively on those plays so that people remember you. Yes. Awesome. Thank you for that. Now, Would you agree that the likelihood that the person who becomes the chief executive officer of Goldman Sachs, the likelihood of that being a dumb person is low? Low for sure. Yeah. So the current CEO of uh, Goldman Sachs is a guy named David Solomon. And I, I don't know David, but I know people who know him quite well. And based on what they tell me, David is the smart, the, the, the furthest thing from fucking dumb. And he's often the smartest person in the room which I would believe. And I've spent a lot of time around a lot of senior people at Goldman Sachs, and that's generally my experience with them. Now, uh, Solomon says that everybody's got to come back to work, right? And he does all this stuff, including getting the mayor of New York to do a big thing with his people and all this sort of stuff. And, you know, there's all this sort of uh, genital tickling that goes on to try to warm people up to get them to come, quote, back to work. So then there's the day. Right. Ta-da. It's going to be April, whatever it was, or you know, it was fairly recent. And half of them, quote unquote, come back to work. Now, David's not dumb. But I think if I had asked the two of you, and I know if he had asked me, I would have told him it's not going to work. They're not going to, quote, come back to work because they're already at work. And so here's the aha. If you're native analog, Work is a place. If you're native digital, work is a space. And sometimes I share that space with other human beings, and sometimes I'm in my fucking pajamas. And so the reason we say there's going to be more market cap destruction in the next five to 10 years as a result of ignorance regarding the delta between what a native digital and native analog is is because of the mistake that David Solomon just made. And we see it happening with native digital, uh, native analog, uh, uh, global 2000 CEOs 
all the time. And Megan, to your point, they don't just do it on the employee culture recruiting side. They do it on the marketing side too. So let me take you to the next part of our theory that I want your feedback on, which is as a result, there is more legendary startup opportunity in the United States of America right now than there ever has been in history. First of all, the technology provides for it. Second of all, the entrepreneurial mindsets on an upswing, um, which is a huge change from where it was a couple years ago when the Wall Street Journal was screaming that entrepreneurship was dying in America. And the ignorance of native analog executives creates unprecedented opportunity for native digital entrepreneurs. Okay, with all that said, thoughts, comments, reactions. I'll jump in here first, but and Chris will talk about this. He was ahead of his time. He decided that Refine Labs was going to be remote first in 2019, way before the pandemic forced everybody into that, you know, opinion. Um, so I'll have him talk about why that is, because I think it's really interesting the way that he thought about it. The one thing I want to add to this conversation, though, before I kick it to him, is we will always continue to be remote first and have a distributed workforce, but it is so important to create in-person experiences. It, it can't be one extreme or the other. And the balance with which you execute on that employee experience strategy is what going to... That's going to be what differentiates the players that can do this well versus not. Because if you're 100% digital, I don't think that you're going to be as successful as you would if you figure out a way to, to marry both effectively. But Chris has a lot of great things to say about why he made this decision before it was cool to make this decision. <laughs> yeah. And what, Meg, what Megan's saying, essentially, you a digital first lens and then use digital to fuel analog or physical experiences. I'm going to talk through remote work and then I'm going to talk through in marketing the opportunity from a remote work standpoint. I decided this in 2019 because a couple of years before that the thing that I noticed is that I would come home from the office and I would do my best work from 6 PM to 9 PM or between 10 PM and midnight. And all of my productive, effective ideas were happening actually outside of the office. And then I decided I'm going to primarily work outside of the office without really talking to the, to the company that I worked for. And they said, you have a choice. You either have to come in for three days a week or um, you can't work here. And I said, all right, I'll go find another job. <laughs> um, and that's, that was the first time played out in 2018 or early 2019 of me being a native digital scene that's so obvious that work doing it this way is better for me and a native company run by all executive team of full native analogs not seeing that shift. So that was the first thing. The next thing, so I'm doing much better work. I feel like I'm being more creative. I feel like I have more flexibility. I have overall better happiness in this environment. And then you think about if I'm trying to build a legendary company, how am I going to build it if I everybody needs to commute within two miles of the downtown Boston in order to get to the office, you have no chance. And you, so for talent, this is, this is mainly for talent access reasons that we want to bring the best of the best people together. And therefore you need to be able to access talent and wherever they are. And the interesting thing that's happened for us is that as we've been accessing that talent, it creates flexibility for them to go places. We had a lot of people that had jobs that were in downtown Seattle 
took a job with us and within six months had moved to Idaho or Montana or Arizona or some other place that creates more flexibility in their lives, creates more happiness, things like that. So on the talent side, a digital first environment is the way that it's going to be from here on out. When you think about the um, the overall opportunity, I think that our company growth and it just totally demonstrates this. We came out of nowhere. We have a unique perspective. We execute digital first. And the, uh, a couple of things that you had uh, didn't mention, but there's a, such a low barrier to entry to create products and experiences that I think is uh, noteworthy and important. And I do believe that our competitive set, right? If you want to put us into some, like we believe that we're creating our own category, but if you want to put into alternatives or competitive set, there's not a single company that's even paying attention to LinkedIn execution right now. We've been doing this for three years, growing at a massive rate, hundreds of percentage points a year. And so why still to this day, are companies not adopting these mar- new, or not, not even new, but obvious marketing opportunities is pure ignorance from com- people that even some of these companies are run by native digitals, which is in- a really interesting sort of nuance that I'd love to get your, your thoughts on. But the opportunity is 100% clear. Thank you for that. And it's interesting, all of the states that you mentioned and towns that you mentioned that people are moving from, uh, I assume you've heard this town, uh, uh, Zoom Towns. Or I don't know. What is that? You've never heard of Zoom Towns? A Zoom Town no. is the place where everybody moves to where they can Zoom to work. Okay. And actually, from a real estate appreciation perspective, I think it was, it was either the Journal of the Times, f- forgive me for forgetting, one of them just wrote an article about sort of this phenomena and which towns that had the biggest increase in real estate prices as a result. And Santa Cruz was number two on the list. But yeah, the Zoom towns are the new boom towns. So to your point, I understand why you want to move to Manhattan. I love Manhattan. It's my favorite city in the world. And if you don't have to live in Manhattan, are you going to live in Manhattan? I don't know. I certainly think if you don't, I mean, I don't know when the last time you were in San Francisco, but uh, it's a bummer in San Francisco. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, from, from the traditional analog boom towns to the new Zoom towns. Now, on the in, in, in-person experience thing, so my buddy Doug Campbelljohn is a legendary entrepreneur. He used to be a Salesforce and then a LinkedIn guy, and uh, he's doing a new startup called Airspeed. And, you know, venture back, top-tier VC, uh, incredible new company. And just like you, Chris, decided uh, no office. And here's what they do. And I forget if it's every, you know, eight weeks or six weeks or 12, whatever. It's every so many weeks, they do an analog thing. So they get everybody together and they go and they whitewater raft or I don't know what the fuck they do. They go and they do fun shit and then they do work shit. So they do the bonding and they do some strategery and then they all go back home. And so the, and they don't have an office. They have plenty of venture money. They could absolutely afford an office. Doug says not for the foreseeable future. And this is the model that they really like, which is you're in your pajamas, go do your thing. And we'll get together on a fairly regular basis because yes, human beings like to be with human beings. And, um, if you're an all a physical person, you know, maybe I want to give you a hug or a high five or fucking something. And, uh, you know, there's a reason we sit down and, and drink whiskey. And so, um, is this something you see happening more? Mm-hmm. I, like I'll, I'll jump in real quick and then I, yeah. cause you're going to cover most of this. It's, I wouldn't say that it's something that I see happening more broadly, but it's something that we're definitely doing. 
right? Um, and so we're at the moment on the cadence of two large experiential events per year with our team. And we're thinking about whether somewhere between two and four is probably the right number. We're at 120 employees. So it's not like get 10 people and go whitewater rafting anymore. There's a lot more uh, thought and production that goes into it. So um, I'm honing in on every four months appears to me to be the right cadence to bring people of that scale and size together for a two or three day um, event that's focused on an experience. So I've been to the national sales meetings where people just spew training at you that you could easily watch on a video. You know what I mean? Like that's not what we're going after here. We're talking about how do we get people together? How do we create creative, innovative spaces where people can collaborate and learn and also do a lot of things that have nothing to do with work so that when we actually go and return to the digital HQ or the Zoom town or whatever you want to call it, that people work better together. People have more context about what's going on. People have been vulnerable vulnerable in person using that level of exp uh, uh, in-person experience to level up the work that we do digitally has been the... It's, I'll say this, it's been, uh, we've done two of them so far in the history of the company, given that we couldn't for the first uh, bit of the pandemic. It's the number one ROI expense on our entire P&L, for sure. And I think to add a couple of points to that, I think the the goal of planning our in-person offsites are at the end of this event, I want everybody to walk away and say, I fucking love to work at this company. This is the best company that I've ever worked at. And I am going to do the best work of my life here. Right? So I tell my whole team that works on these events, like every experience, every you know programming item on the agenda has to contribute to creating this emotion and this feeling. Um, and people ride that for weeks and months after the event. And like Chris said, it's not about training and information sharing. It's about energy management. We have a mandatory recess. The, all, all meetings end at 3 p.m. because people are done, right? And have a fun recess where you do, you know, we can uh, curate it so it's fun and then come back for dinner and awards later, right? So those are just a couple of things. But you need to completely break the paradigm of what like a typical corporate offsite agenda typically is if you want to achieve that type of result. I wanted to add another point because you mentioned you, the guy that does whitewater rafting with his team, you know, successful VC-backed company. I grew up in the New York City startup scene at a ton of different successful VC-backed SaaS and, and tech companies. Um, when Chris and I teamed up, we decided we didn't want VC money. We wanted to be able to control our own destiny. And I, I I believe because of my personal experience in working at so many different companies that a lot of business leaders don't do things that they believe that they should because of external pressures that they're getting from investors or the board. And I'm curious, you know, this was, I guess your friend is an example of where that isn't an issue. Um, but I think that's a big part of it because it creates such a short-term mindset to not do the right thing by your people, not make these types of decisions. And then also taking it back to marketing, not investing in the right long-term marketing strategies to like actually sustainably grow your customer acquisition. Um, so curious what you think about that. Well, my reaction to that is A, you have the wrong VCs. Hmm. 
because legendary VCs, and I think I can speak with real authority about this because I know a handful of the greatest VCs in the history of fucking VCs. I spent time with the guy that is the category designer of VC. And all of them, all of them to a person say that if we're backing a company with an entrepreneur who needs my advice, we're fucked. Now, is my advice important? It should be. Do I want to be a person that is smart enough that when I share advice with an entrepreneur who I've invested in, that they take my thoughts into consideration? Yes. And it's up to them to fucking decide. (laughs) And if they decide the opposite, that's okay. Because if I'm on your board, Megan's the COO and Walker's the CEO, and you fucking decide, not me. That's the difference between an investor or an advisor or a board member and a person running a company. So if I'm the coach and you're the fighter and I say, hey, listen, try the left hook and you try the left hook and it doesn't work or you ignore my advice and knock them out with a right cross. Excellent. <laughs> so, so A, um, wrong CEO, wrong board members, if you're listening to that. So um, wrong all the way around. Common. I feel like that's more common than what you describe, though. If you're a CEO and you think your job is that you work for your VC, you are fucked. <laughs> I agree. But no, really. you can't deny that it, that it you're exists. You're the CEO. We're betting on you. If you fail, it's over. I'm not an operating executive anymore. I've been on a lot of boards, a lot of whatevers. That transition's a hard transition to make. It was a very challenging one for me, going to be going from the guy that calls the shots to being the guy that supports the gal that calls the shots. That's a very big mental fuck transition. I'm <laughs> hopefully well past that transmission, transition or transmission for that matter. And now I love being it. And that's a whole other conversation we can have if you like. But confusion around that means you're very confused and you probably have a tanked company. And so when you're going to raise VC, you have to be very, look, the wrong VC will crush the company. And a VC who acts like she's the CEO of the company is a fucking terrible VC. And a CEO who treats the VC like she works for them is a, is not ready to be a fucking CEO. <laughs> well said. Thank you. Now, um, <laughs> Okay, so so here's another thread that we've been sort of pulling on that I've been uh, really looking forward to playing with you guys on, which is more has changed in the world and therefore in marketing in the last five years than in the last 50 years combined. I believe that to be true. I've been in business for 36 years. I think I can say that with a little bit of authority. So that's kind of point A. Point B is particularly in B2B, although I think it's also true in consumer, but that when this is true in consumer, the bad things happen faster than typically they happen in B2B. Anyway, here's my point. Most B2B marketing leaders, whether they realize it or not, are working on 30 to 50 year mental frameworks. I'll give you a simple example. You got to be everywhere. You got to be on every platform. You got to put out 200 fucking things a day. Right? Gary VD classic bullshit. Well, that thinking 
goes all the way back to an old advertising concept called reach and frequency. And what reach and frequency, of course, says is the more people who hear my thing more often, the better off I'll do. We believe that's insane. Completely insane. And there's no way to win the reach and frequency game anymore just because of how many channels there are in the omni-channel world that we live in. So the more reach and frequency game you play, the more you fail. And yet, without realizing it, most marketing, and, and certainly most B2B marketing, goes all the way back to that idea. And so we believe that while there are some core principles that will never change, we talk about those if you want, that the radical change in the, in the world and in the marketing world is significantly radical and that most people, even some younger people, Krista, I think a point you were on a little bit earlier, because they're dealing with mental frameworks that are 50 years old, 30 years old, they're shackled by those frameworks. So does any of that sound right to you? I got a couple of points here. Um, the first one is that I actually don't, in, in my experience with hundreds of SaaS companies specifically, don't see companies obsessing over reach and frequency. They're obsessing over how many email addresses can I collect? That's really what it comes to. How many email addresses and phone numbers Which can I collect? Which is sort of the so digital are, equivalent. <laughs> yes, exactly. Keep going. So, that our, so that our sales team can try and call those people and sell to them like we would before the internet existed. And so we continue to use that as a proxy for success in marketing. And it's just time to sort of overall change the paradigm. And for me, it's where do you get your information from? And when I look at this, there is an entire ecosystem of B2B marketing that is closed off that involves technology vendors that sell marketing and sales technology that then pay and work with analyst firms like Forrester and Gartner to be able to position the products. And then both of those firms push messages into the market that are biased toward the technology that keep marketers stuck on the old way of doing shit. And so I believe that's the entire ecosystem. A lot of people, a lot of vendors don't appreciate the perspective that I put across on attribution and account-based marketing technology that runs display ads and other things because nobody else is challenging anything here. And so I believe that somebody in the market, and it's going to be me for right now and hopefully others follow to challenge the way that everything has been done because all of those vendors and companies profit from you continuing to operate in a primarily old, outdated way. So let me make a statement and see uh, your, both re your reaction. I'm making the statement to get a reaction, not necessarily because I believe it, although we'll, we'll see. Uh, we're now at a place where uh, Gartner, Forrester et al. are almost useless. What's your reaction? Yeah, ask every CMO that, that works with them. When, when I ask CMOs, how, how's your relationship with Gartner? They say they, it's, uh, it's bribery. We have, to pay, we have to pay them. They do nothing for us um, so that we can be in this quadrant. And then if you ask buyers, what are the things that you use inside of your buying process to decide what to buy? All of the companies think that they're using the quadrant. And what buyers actually use is talk to peers, leverage communities, research content online, look at review sites, all of the new ways of looking at it. And so you just see this in, in incredible divergence between what companies think buyers do when they're buying versus what buyers tell you if you ask them about how they buy. Chris, 
is it wrong for one man to love another man? <laughs> I love you. <laughs> <laughs> I love you too. It's so fucking true. You know, my friend, legendary entrepreneur, founder of a company called Crash, uh, Isaac Morehouse, said this years ago. And he just gets writer and writer every second, which is be your own credential. When I talk to CEOs and CMOs about exactly this topic, what I say to them is you understand you're using someone else's brand to build your category and brand. You're, you're outsourcing the development of your fucking market and the perception of your fucking company to a bunch of failed product managers from CA. And so, but, but that was the game 20 years ago. That was the game 30 years ago and they still play the game. And by the way, I'm being uh, overly whatever for a reason. Are there some smart people at Gartner? There may be a couple. Are there some smart people at Forrester? There might be a few. And by the way, I think uh, Ray Wong is a goddamn genius. So he, to, to me, Ray and Constellation are in a whole other category. Uh, they're the opposite of the traditional uh, pleated khaki, blue button down wearing, 40 pounds overweight, dusty analyst at your typical uh, analyst firm. And we believe there's going to be, uh, I hate to interject here, but we believe there's going to be an emergence of a new firm that will eventually uh, substitute or replace what an analyst firm does. An analyst firm does two things. They build these quadrants so they can recommend technology and they provide research so that companies can use that research in order to drive strategic decisions or get buy-in or things like that. Yes. The quadrant piece is clearly being disrupted by review sites, anecdotal insights from peers, other things like that. B2B buyers understand that those quadrants are biased. Yes. They get that. And the interesting thing is, and I th- I think this is indicative of the success Refine has had. Uh, But if you look at what's happening, it's the same thing that's happening in media. So if you read Inc., or as I like to call it, Stink and Fast Company and all of that stuff, you have a commitment to stupidity. And those brands and those categories are dying at rapid speed because Essentially, if it's in Inc. magazine, it's fucking dumb. There's no entrepreneur of consequence that reads that. Now, what do they do? What do they read? Ben Thompson's Stratechery. So he's replaced. If you want to know what's going on, you read Stratechery. What else has replaced them? My friend Bob Evans. He started this thing called Cloud War several years ago, and it's absolutely taken off. And, and when, when Oracle does a quarter, he gives you an update on that, and he interprets it for you and helps you put it into context and da, 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 da. And he's got all these rankings of things and all this sort of shit. And so, so today people will go to Ben Thompson. They'll go to Bob Evans. They'll go to uh, native digital media. Uh, the folks at the information have done a legendary job in my opinion, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And so Chris, I think it's, it's already happening and it's happening at scale. And the direct to creator model means that if I'm a legendary thinker about tech, I, I don't have to work for fucking Gartner. I, I, I'm going to make a hundred X more, 10 X more, whatever it is being Ben Thompson, being Bob Evans, than I am being a nose picking senior analyst at a, at an analyst firm. And I'm, and more importantly, I'm going to make a bigger difference because If my point of view is valuable, people will pay for it 
in a direct-to-consumer way. And so I don't need a Gartner brand on my ad. Bob Evans doesn't need some other brand. Isaac Morehouse, be your own credential. He's Bob fucking Evans. Ten minutes ago, nobody knew who Chris Walker was. Nobody knew who Megan was. And like you guys are, you know, one of the top marketing voices in the, in the tech world today. And that to me is the difference, but I'm curious as to your reaction. The first thing that came to mind for me, and then I'll let, let Megan jump in is about the idea that in the native analog world, marketers needed to use third parties in order to access their audience because you didn't have the internet to go direct to consumer. So what you needed to do in 2004 is you needed to go out and build a trade show booth because the trade association was the person who the place that got everyone together so that you could go there and they could stumble upon your booth. You needed to use Forrester or Gartner because they had access to the audience that you were trying to get because you couldn't get them without a huge sales team feed on the street in 2004. All of the reasons why you would do those marketing activities 18 years ago or 20 years ago or whatever, even as recently as 10 years ago, no longer exist. All the constraints that would drive you to do those things no longer exist, but people do not critically think about why did we start doing this in the first place? Fucking A! Yes! And I think until there's a replacement framework or strategy, like Gartner and Forrester will probably continue to chug along, make a lot of money every year doing what they're doing, Like, but, but they are it's ripe for disruption right now. But there needs to be, I think... And, you know, Chris is leading the way there. There needs to be a new strategy asserted and a new way to push that into the market that becomes more widely accepted and people begin to realize and make that change. So let's go to this. I think it's been clear for easily half a decade, maybe longer. uh, It was clear to me in the early 2000s, working on a startup with the legendary Mike Homer, who... uh, was the CMO of Netscape and one of the greatest marketing minds in the history of Silicon Valley, God rest his soul. Uh, He did a startup. uh, The details aren't specific, but he was doing a startup towards the end of his life in the early 2000s that was about exactly this. And it just became very clear. It was on video, and he was one of the very early uh, guys promoting that essentially you need to, to build an internal media company inside your company for both external and internal video. And that had a lot of broad application. Uh, The company was called Zodiac. And it was like, I don't know when he started, 2001, 2002, somewhere in that timeframe. So for a very long time, uh, and he and I spent a lot of time going to Hollywood and all these people, and we did all this stuff trying to figure out how this might play out. Anyway, it's been very clear to me, thanks to his insight back then, that in order to be successful in the future, all companies would have to be media companies. And Chris, I love the way you framed this, which is in the old analog world, the uh, analysts had the access because they had the relationships and you needed to do the analyst dance because they had, everybody went to the Gartner Mondo IT thing and fucking at the Swan and Dolphin and fucking Orlando. By the way, I'm never going to the Swan and Dolphin ever again, but I digress. Uh, And now, of course, this oddcast is downloaded in 190 fucking countries. And more importantly, you two have built a, would you call yourselves a consult, marketing consulting firm, a marketing agency? How, how, how do you want me to think about it? Consulting firm, but we're working on the category design. 
Yeah. Well, if, if you want to have a conversation about that, we can have it anytime you like. Um, we'll probably take you up on that. <laughs> yeah, my hand, my hand is raised. This is being recorded. <laughs> there will be evidence. Oh, fuck. I got to be careful because so much of what I say now is recorded. It's like, you know, there's going to be evidence. <laughs> I know. I know Jason now too. So it won't be edited. Yeah, exactly. Out. <laughs> No, I'm happy to give you a hand if I can. But that insight is a very powerful one, Chris, because that's exactly what's happened, for example, in the media business. My first book was published by a major publisher. That was six years ago. Over time, it has become abundantly clear to me that that is a dumb idea. It was a dumb idea six years ago. It's an insane idea today. And if you offered me, Eddie and Cole, a million dollar advance for the next category pirates book. We wouldn't give it to you. I don't even, I don't know that we'd do it for 5 million. Probably not. Um, Because A, we think we're going to make a lot of money from it. And B, more importantly, agency means something to us that agency has a value that is infinitely higher than cash. But anyway, the aha is this, long story longer. Just like the technology has now disintermediated publishers so that authors can go direct to consumer, it has been clear for the better part of 20 years that building a media company on the front end of your company, a digital media company, was going to be the marketing strategy. You two are living proof. There's a billion marketing agencies. There are very few of them that go from zero to 100 plus people in three years. Very few. I've been around a long time, right? And I'm going to assert, you'll tell me if this is right, but a huge part of what has allowed you to do that is, I think you said this earlier, Chris, digital first, analog second, right? Mm -hmm. So this leads me to a question. Why then do the vast majority of people in the B2B tech world not do what Refine has done and they don't, I, I can't get them to do what you've done. I can't get them to fucking understand. First, you're a digital media company. Second, you sell software. It only comes down to two things. Number one, outdated analog first mindset. The mindset that what we do is primarily do sales first and marketing is a lead in supporter assistant to sales like it was in B2B in 2011. So that's the mindset that we're going to be sales first prevents you from doing things that are long-term, building a media company because you're not going to get that quick hit of, we got a meeting today. So no one ever gets started because they can't, they don't have the exit velocity to get through the first three, six, nine months to you actually see meaningful traction and results through the leading sales lens that they look through it at. The second one that I am obsessed about and talk about so frequently is the idea that the way that marketing attribution and marketing measurement works in B2B companies essentially prevents you from doing this at all. Because all of the channels and activities and things that you do in order to do this do not get properly measured by attribution software, which has wrongly improperly become the quote unquote gold standard best practices to use only software to measure the effectiveness of your marketing which creates this very transactional, direct response, Google paid lead gen first type of mindset because they're e- all those activities are easy to measure and match the mindset of being sales first with marketing, just helping sales do sales. So if you can break out of those two things and we help companies try and we give companies new frameworks to think about attribution, we give companies new frameworks to think about how marketing is its own entity 
that's responsible for driving demand, creating demand in the market so that buyers want to buy and then sales can capture the demand. So those those are ideas that companies, if if they picked up on, would see that it's very obvious and clear. And now I have a framework to operate in so that I can actually build a media company in a way that my board approves by, the CEO agrees. Those are the those are two big gating factors. Boards come in and say we want five thousand MQLs. When you got to make five thousand MQLs with all your marketing budget, what happens? You got no time to build a podcast. You got no time to to think about your category. You got no time to do customer research. You can know what they want to t- you to talk about on the podcast. So you just get stuck on what I call the MQL hamster wheel, which is plaguing most B2B entities today. Spinning around on a wheel, collecting MQLs, thinking that they're going somewhere, but actually going nowhere. I think, and especially my experience growing up in New York City and being at a ton of different startups, there's a growth at all costs mentality of wanting to build companies as quickly as possible that are not healthy, sustainable businesses and constantly making decisions that put the company first and not your team or your customers. And I think it's when you think about this from like a company building lens, it's all of the decisions that we make are about our team, then our customers, and then the company. And when you completely flip that paradigm and use that as your North Star for decision making, um, you can actually create and build a high growth company, but on sustainable unit economics and build a place that people actually want to work at um, and create a 100% inbound customer acquisition engine where our sales team are not reaching out. They're simply having consultation calls to determine if it's going to be a good fit customer. So just to add that that piece, I think that was that was the mindset that I had witnessed at so many different types of companies over and over again. And the mindset that we're looking to flip as we think about how to model what building a modern company should should be like here. Yes. Thank you for that. The interesting thing about these uh, measurable metrics for marketing, you know, marketing qualified leads, what's the marketing contribution to revenue, all this sort of stuff. On one hand, I think it's great. I'm a data guy. And I think the more data we have to give us a lens on what's happening and, and to be predictive and anticipatory around what might happen. I think in general, that's a good thing. But there's two pieces to this that are problematic. The first one is a story I wanted to tell you, which is uh, my first CMO gig was a CRM company called Vantive. And shortly after I got there, this company called Siebel started to ascend rapidly. And there was four or five of us in the space who were roughly similar in size and we were battling it out. And then Siebel came out of nowhere and, and was was... Uh, ultimately took over the category, and I could explain why. However, while that was going on, our CEO decided that a big part of our problem against Siebel was operational efficiency and effectiveness, and we needed to be more professionally run. Okay. So he he fell in love with this a Japanese improvement process based on this phrase you probably heard called Kaizen's, right? So Kaizen's just essentially something, Kaizen I think means constant improvement if I'm not mistaken. And so what you do is you figure out all these metrics in the company that matter from how long it takes a new employee to get up and running on a laptop to how long it takes to close a sale to everything else, how long it takes accounting to close the GL at the end of the quarter, whatever, right? And we just called them Kaizen's. They're essentially KPIs, 
right? And we had all the, and we brought in the fucking Kaizen consulting group and we had all these Kaizen nose picking people around and we set up all these fucking spreadsheets and we made all our people get trained in it and everybody had to fill out all these fucking forms and blah, 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 blah. Anyway, it got stupider and stupid. It was stupid to begin with and then it got really stupid, right? Meanwhile, Siebel just keeps crushing us and crushing us and crushing us. We're about six or eight months into the Kaizen thing and we're having another uh, exec staff meeting and our CEO who was just, uh, this, he was one of those guys that just changed strategies. Like he changed underwear. Right. And he was also one of the worst things an executive could be, which is the last person to talk to him is what he parroted. He was that kind of a guy. Anyway, we're having a meeting. We're having a, our Monday staff meeting and he's going on and on about, you know, Siebel this and Siebel that, and what else could we do to beat Siebel? And, da, 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 da. and the guy sitting next to me uh, was our head of engineering, Gary Halley, a genius guy, a good friend to this day. As John, the CEO, is saying, well, you know, what about Siebel? What are we going to do beat Siebel? No, 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 no. Gary whispers in my ear and says, why don't we give him some Kaizans? <laughs> <laughs> so that's point A. Point B is this. The other thing about MQLs and all these other marketing metrics, you tell me because you guys are more in the trenches these days than I am. Virtually all of them are around demand capture. That's 100% correct. And I think Google and attribution and all that has probably meant more good than bad in marketing, for sure. More precision, more data, it's been valuable. However, the spreadsheets have taken over. And one of the things that got lost in the now, oh good, now we can measure everything, is we ended up getting coerced into a hundred percent demand capture. How good's your SEO? No, 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 sort of stuff, right? And when I say to people, hey, um, have you ever fucking thought about what happens before somebody Googles something? And so tell me about this demand capture obsession that I think has been fueled by data and, and measurement that I think has taken our eye off the giant ball, which is she who creates the demand wins. You're 100% correct. Um, there was a big swing at the age of where marketing technology was starting to come up in the early 2010s, where it was marketing's the pic pretty picture department, and we have no data to, we need to measure every single cent uh, to the ROI of what's happening. And when that happened, technology emerged and ad platforms like Google and Facebook and all of those other ones that create the metrics inside of the platforms to facilitate that, to prove that they're the one that captured the demand so that they show up in the attribution system so that they can continue to get more ad spend. So this is just a combination of ad platforms where dollars go in combination with the software technologies that use to measure it that are all built around capturing the demand. So that's one big thing that leaves every company out there that wants to go out and create demand, build a category and win, like what we're doing at Refine Labs and what we help 55 B2B SaaS companies do right now. They're not doing any of those things. So over time, they become viewed as a commodity or a second or third player inside of a category that's not as relevant as it could be. The second piece that I'll say is that there's been a way over correction to a place where, where companies only value quantitative data. 
And there is a massive, massive value to an opportunity for marketers and business leaders out there to go back to the basics and value qualitative customer research where you go out and talk to people, collect information, get those insights, synthesize them in your brain, not a spreadsheet, and build a strategy that other people can't build. That's how you win. Um, and so there's a correction here that needs to happen where we value both quantitative and qualitative and hoping that more and more people do it because it, it truly is the, the difference. And all of your competitors or all of the other people that are competing for the market share are not doing this stuff. They're not talking to customers. They're not learning. They're not getting the insights. You pull, you go and do that, pull out the insights, you build a different product, you build a different marketing strategy, you have a better or different customer experience, and then you go out and you win. Amen. Hallelujah, Dr. Walker. Uh, and the interesting thing is this obsession with uh, metrics and data and marketing, you know, it, all, it leads to this. There are many startups in Silicon Valley right now who are spending 50%, half of their VC money on Google and Facebook ads, which is 100% a demand capture game for exactly this point. And the other metric that everybody looks at is, is they call it CAC, right? Customer acquisition costs. Well, I don't want any CAC on me, but that's a whole other conversation. Um, but, and so people go, well, shit, we're, we're spending 50% of our VC money on Google and Facebook. We got to get our CAC down. That's the problem. We're spending too much money half our VC with two vendors. What that means is our CAC is too high and we got to figure out how to increase or our, our decrease our CAC. And there's no conversation at all about demand capture, demand creation. In addition, not only are we not having that conversation, we're having zero conversation called the step in between, which is damn the demand. You thought you wanted that, but what you really need is this. And that's very different than competing for existing demand. And so how do you get, if let's say I'm a CEO, a founder, a CMO, and I have this traditional mindset that we've been talking about, because this is what I've got trained in. This is also why we say 90% of what you've been taught about business is complete bullshit. It's just, it's, it's just actually fuck wrong, but nobody ever thought about it. So if I'm a potential client, founder, CEO, CMO, some hot ding dong, B2B SaaS company, and I have been polluted with the disease of this stupidity, which is a radical over uh, rotation on trackable data and metrics around demand capture. I, I, I've been trained that that's the thing. What, what can you do to help me? We do uh, a couple of things, and I think one of them is ultra simple and incredibly fascinating, but I'll go through both of them. The first one is we help them run an analysis to show how inefficient their demand capture is. Most companies, high CAC payback that spend a majority of money on Google are looking at CAC paybacks that are greater than 36 months on just advertising spend in B2B SaaS. It's literally terrible because they look at MQLs, but they never connect it to revenue. So being able to connect that piece is one, but this one is way more interesting to me because it really shows this. What we help companies do is we say, inside of your form that people are going to fill out to go and 
either buy the product or talk to your sales team or something like that, put a form in there, open text field required that says, how did you hear about our company or our product or our brand? We did this for ourselves. We published the data. We watched companies do it. And what do you get when you, when you put that field on? People fill out and tell you what created the demand, not what captured it. And then you get, I heard about you through a colleague. I saw it on this newspaper ad. I heard your CEO talk at this conference six months ago. I um, heard about you in a Slack community that's filled with CMOs. My VC recommended you. Those are the things that you get when you put that field in and all you have to do is ask and then you get qualitative data that you then can through string automation turn into quantitative data. And then you have two views. You have your software-based attribution look that shows you what captured the demand, which is the only thing that companies use right now. And then you get a view that's different. It's not running through software. It's not 100% perfect, but it gives you way better insights on what's creating the demand so that you can actually figure out how am I going to optimize there? If it's in a community, how am I going to be able to put content in there? How am I going to work with the people that lead that community to become friendly with them, to do collaborative events, things like that? If I'm getting... If people for us, we get 47% of our revenue says that they come from... That they heard about us through the podcast and another 29% say through LinkedIn. And so a lot of it is a combination of the two. And so we got a lot of fucking confidence to keep running the podcast three times a week and keep posting on LinkedIn as a company and as a CEO. I do it seven, six, seven days a week. We got a lot of confidence that this is working, that we're going to keep doing it. And all the other companies that are trying to build their media company inside of their B2B SaaS company because they don't make simple steps to change how they measure marketing, it will always fail. Which makes you Zelensky and Musk-esque per our earlier discussion. I love the full circle there. So that's great. Now, maybe maybe let's get a little uh, data oriented. When you do that for Refine and you get your clients to ask that, how did you hear about us? What is the data telling us on creation, demand creation versus capture? What what do people say in that freeform dialogue or that freeform box, message box? I can speak for our own business because I've run the analysis specifically. We're working on a much larger analysis that combines that data, but it's not available yet. So in our business, when you look at the creation of demand at a revenue standpoint, not MQLs or leads or opportunities, but down to revenue, 47% of our revenue gets attributed to podcasts. Another 29% gets attributed to social media, specifically LinkedIn. Then you have smaller percentages of word of mouth and community. That's where all the, all the revenue traces back to those four things. And then when you look at the captured demand side that comes for, from software-based attribution, 80% is, gets attributed to Google search and 20% gets attributed to direct traffic. That seems to make sense. So, which is, which is essentially telling you nothing. Right. Yeah. And if it, people ran the analysis at their own company, they're going to get the exact same thing because... When you're capturing the demand, it's the natural flow of how buyers buy stuff. But you folks have built a, how many employees now, Chris? About 120. You built a 120 person consulting firm, marketing consulting firm during the worst recession in modern history in a few years, essentially because you have a podcast and you're smart on LinkedIn. I think that's what you just said, right? And then that drives word of mouth and it, it's, that starts mm-hmm. the good to the perspective, but yes, like step the, one. Is yeah. I mean, if, 
if you had if you had stupid shit to say, it wouldn't go anywhere. I under, yeah, of course. There's the quality of your point of view. Yes, no, and clearly you don't have stupid shit to say. And so the interesting thing to me about that is you can present those facts to a native analog CEO and they can go, yeah, 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 that's exactly what we need to do. You know, I, I know some folks. One of my buddies is a CEO of a very serious company, public company. And I've had my foot up his ass for five years to start a fucking podcast. And he won't do it. He's, he's very busy. He's on a plane. He's meeting the queen. He's solving world hunger. His calendar is managed down to 15-minute increments. So he's like, dude, I just don't have time for a podcast. I'm like, okay. So they get it. They just won't stop doing the old thing. They won't get off the dime. They don't know. You know, my partner, Nicholas Cole, is probably the greatest digital writer of all time. Certainly the most viewed in the in the in the business content space, he's the most viewed digital writer of all time. And um, writing on the internet is very different than writing in anywhere else. I was a multi-time best-selling author when he clearly demonstrated to me that my writing skills on the internet were a joke. He was right. I had to learn a whole new skill set. That's how big the analog to digital conversion didn't work when you just slap digital onto the analog stuff. And so this is why I go back to the fact that we are going to see more market cap destruction in the global 2000 slash S&P 500 in the next five years than we have in the last 50 because of exactly this point. So now let's switch from how do we talk to the people who don't get it to, okay, I'm an entrepreneur who does get it. And I realize I got a five-year window to kick a lot of intergalactic ass right here. What would you advise me to do? The strategy is simple. We've been talking about it this entire time. It's clarify your point of view and your strategic narrative. And to, and it actually really does matter. You've been talking a lot about this, Christopher, on, with obvious and non-obvious content, right? You actually have to have a meaningful, unique, compelling, differentiated point of view. So that's table stakes. But once, and that's the hard part. But once you have that, then you meet your audience where they are. Start the podcast, start posting on LinkedIn, other social media platforms. TikTok is coming right up. Chris is doing a ton of work experimenting on TikTok right now to really figure out what that is about um, and then consistently execute. And I'm going to add a couple other things. You sort of got there with the native analogs that can't stop doing all of the old stuff that would, if they stopped it, they would have so much time to do all the new stuff that actually fucking works right now. And so you, and so to go off of that, like you need to have conviction in your point of view. The, the way that you get conviction in your point of view and your strategy is that you talk to the customer. The customer will tell you exactly what you, what you need. If you can ask the right questions and interpret what they're actually saying you'll know exactly where to go, which then gives you a path. And when then you start going on that path and you look around and nobody else is on the path, you're on a great path. It's a good thing. When I looked around in 2019 and there was nobody else that was executing on LinkedIn well, I was like, this is the place. This is what's going to happen. The same thing when I started doing the event and the podcast and you just keep building. If nobody else is executing there, 
then it's probably a good thing, which is the opposite of what most executives think. They look around and say, what is everybody else doing? And they just herd like sheep to do the same shit. You just explained why Super Bowl ads are expensive. And in my opinion, with some exceptions, I think if you do it in a super thoughtful, innovative way, this won't be true. But with very few exceptions, the vast majority of Super Bowl ads, you, you might as well just take the fucking money and light it on fire. Light that shit on fire for exactly that reason. When everyone else is doing it, you're not going to stand out. Marketing is about fucking standing out. Hello, hello, wakey, wakey, earth to brain, fuck. But, you know, this is branding. This is branding 101. The entire fucking industry has been consumed by the big brand lie, right? Which goes back to reach and frequency. Um, yes, awesome. Anything else you guys want to talk about? <laughs> I could talk to you guys forever. <laughs> I know. Uh, this was great. We got to do a part yeah. two. Yeah. I don't know. Chris, you always have good closing thoughts. Chris Walker, that is. <laughs> I'll leave the closing thoughts to you, actually. I think um, there's been a lot of great discussion here. I think that's a good place to... A good place that I want to leave it is to just reiterate the point that if you're going down a path that your customers are like, this is where I'm researching and discovering, this is where I'm learning, this is what I want you to provide to me, and nobody else is doing that, then you know you're in a good spot. Yeah, I mean, we, we found that with Substack. The number of CEOs that are not on Substack or, or, or the equivalent, I mean, I don't, I'm not attached to them as a company, but um, if you are not like doing a legit legendary uh, to the inbox newsletter right now, in my opinion, you're insane. Just like if you're not doing a podcast right now, you're fucking insane. And they don't do it. They just don't do it. Or if they do do it, they hire a wanker and the wanker writes bad copy that is pretty much an ad anyway. Right. I, I tweeted this out a while. We, we wrote a, a category pirates called uh, uh, content free marketing and how the entire industry just puts out content free content. And the purpose of the content is to be like a Marriott lobby, which is completely not offensive and completely unmemorable. And so they put together this fucking content free Marriott lobby fucking content and they wonder why nothing happens. And that's the difference between Zelensky Musk and your average uh, wanker. And the problem is if you hire a low-level marketing copywriting wanker to create that, well, you're going to get not very much, are you? And so the idea of owning it, I mean, I think the thing that has made Refine so powerful, and this goes back to the Zelensky and Musk comment, is, and this is where... Um, so in, you guys pretty much know how I feel about the stupidity of personal branding. There's one conceptual point of it that I agree with, which is today more than ever, because of the disintermediation, people want direct access. They like to hear from Elon. They love the fact that the president of the country is standing in a street talking to Instagram about what's going on in Kiev, right? That it's, so in other words, the personal connection to the leadership is how category, well, let me say it this way, is a seminal part of how category and brand affiliation and affinity gets created today. And when you have, Megan, to your point, that strategic, highly differentiated point of view, and then you have a great messenger 
to deliver that point of view, that's worth a lot more than any Super Bowl ad ever will. And I think it'll be another five years for sure until most uh, business leadership understands this and most of the native analogs will get fired and what will cause the shift to happen will be native digitals running S&P 500 companies and startups becoming S&P 500 companies that were founded by native digitals. Does that, does that triangulate? Totally agree. Well said. Anything else? This was fun. I look forward to our second recording episode and our consulting call on category design. I still haven't forgotten. <laughs> as soon as you're ready, Megan. <laughs> All right. Well, hey, congratulations on the success of Refine Labs so far. You've done an outstanding job. Very, very impressive. I admire you much and you've taught me much and I deeply appreciate that. And I hope you'll teach me a lot more. Amazing. Thanks so much for having us on the show. This was a blast. Thank you both. Well, there they are, the legendary Megan Bowen and Chris Walker. Uh, their company, again, is called Refine Labs. You can check them out on the internet at refinelabs.com. And if you enjoyed this episode, why not share it with your entire team? You know, we get emails on a fairly regular basis from marketing leaders who tell us that they have made this podcast a must-listen for their whole team. So if that's you, thank you. And if that's not you, why not infect your entire team with some non-obvious different thinking and get them subscribed. All right. We would like to thank, of course, you. Thanks for investing part of your life with us. Our friends at Category Design Advisors will help you design and dominate your market category. Check out CategoryDesignAdvisors.com. Our good friends at Atranet, A-T-R-E dot N-E-T, have been building legendary B2B websites in Silicon Valley for over 20 years, and they have a rapid relaunch program. So if you want a new website that's legendary and you want it fast, check out A-T-R-E dot N-E-T. Our friends at Clarity.com are bringing a whole new paradigm to revenue. You see, most CEOs and senior executives have a very hard time answering the single most important question in business, which is, are you going to beat, meet, or miss on revenue? Clary is the, inter- is the enterprise revenue platform. Uh, so check out Clary, C-L-A-R-I.com. That's Clary.com and drive a breakthrough in your revenue. Uh, before acting on any of today's information, please contact your doctor, lawyer, mystic, therapist, bartender, yoga instructor, and especially, of course, your category designer. I must warn you that the creators of this podcast were absolutely consuming libations. Everything is the way that it is because somebody changed the way that it was. Don't forget to listen to the State of Demand podcast. And um, never forget, most of what we've been taught about marketing and entrepreneurship is actually garbage. Don't forget to pick up a copy of Category Pirate's latest number one bestseller, the Category Design Toolkit on Amazon. We are produced and edited by the GOAT, Jason DeFilippo. Check out his podcast, Grumpy Old Geeks. If you're in the tech industry, it's a laugh riot. Uh, Our friends Sarah Knox and Jamie J do all the incredible technical execution around here, and they're responsible for Lockhead.com. Show notes by the handsome and talented GM Simon. The brothers Bobis, RJ and EX, do our web development, and Cedric Biros does our graphic and web design. Our law firm is Weed and Jack, and our accountants are three balance sheets to the wind. The thought I'll leave you with today comes from Michael Gerber, who said, most entrepreneurs fail because they are working in their business rather than working on their business. Thanks again for investing part of your life with us. Till we're together again, stay legendary and follow your different. <laughs>